Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And on this show, we and our guests will discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us will be Dr. Natalie Rodden, a high-energy and incredibly joyful young woman physician in Denver, Colorado, who is a palliative care and hospice care specialist. Uh, you don't want to miss this. She'll explain it like no one else you've ever heard. And Tom, our listeners really need to pay attention to this uh, this episode. Why should they, they pay should, attention, Chris? <laughs> they should pay attention to all of our episodes, of course, you say. Yes. Um, but because if you think about it, there's a very good chance that each of us or and someone we love will need the assistance of a palliative care or hospice physician at some point. Not something we necessarily uh, think about fondly or plan for, but but it is a biological reality. We're all suffering from a terminal disease, um, <laughs> and we're going to need help with that. We're an aging society, uh, and with age comes greater likelihood of serious medical conditions uh, and illnesses, and the potential for diagnoses that really can be thought of as you know diagnoses of grave consequence. Uh, and it's in these situations when asking for the help of a palliative care physician or team can change everything for the better. Uh, and we're going to learn that, I know, uh, when Natalie joins us later on in the episode. Um, you know, I, I know that you know, and some of our listeners might know, that I have a dark past um, where I did a tour as a hospital administrator. Yes, I don't want to know what priest gave you that penance. Well, actually, I do, so I don't go to him to, for confession. Right. It was in another life in a galaxy far, far away. Um, but one of my responsibilities when I worked with this really large health system was the palliative care team. Um, and in all honesty, it was one of my favorite responsibilities. Um, so, the you know, the overriding characteristic, I guess, of palliative care professionals, I think, would be probably empathy. You know, that is, they're just all around incredibly nice, caring people. Uh, and I think our listeners will come away from listening to Natalie and think, yeah, I hit that one, you know, right on the head. Um, but it really was the most fun part of my job because they are so good uh, and they're so caring. But listeners, a little bit of background, uh, some context, you might say, from a demographic standpoint. A few years ago, there were about 7,000 uh, hospice and palliative care physicians um, reported by the Medical, American Medical Association. Um, and on average, there were about 15, almost 16 of them per 100,000 people age 65 and older. Most people would argue that's a shortage uh, that we need more. Uh, the women in the specialty are going up. Uh, a little over half of them are men, uh, but almost 65% of those in palliative care training uh, are women. So the mm. supply of women in the specialty is going up rapidly. So palliative care is something you may not have heard about. You've probably heard about hospice care, but we promise by the end of this episode, if you pay <laughs> close attention, you are going to be an expert on palliative and hospice care, and among other things, the difference between the two. You know, I think one of the mysteries that'll be answered for some people is how can people be so joyful when they're dealing with people who are gravely ill and or near the end of life, because that's a, a stress-inducing condition for most people to be around others like that. They have learned some secret to dealing with some of the most uncomfortable situations in human life. Yeah, it is remarkable. And what, what character it takes to shepherd people through uh, such a terrible time, not be negatively impacted by it, uh, and really be so focused on caring for them um, instead of ourselves, um, just thinking about it is humbling. Right. Because so often as physicians, we're taught that the only kind of win is a cure. But apparently there are other kinds of wins in our days that might not be a cure, might be something else. So I encourage listeners, you know, what is it that she says is a win for a patient that isn't a cure? Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people uh, are involved in palliative and hospice care, and that's an excellent segue into <laughs> this episode's trivia question. Indeed it is. I'm trying to pick the trivia question so they deal with the subject, so that the topic is hospice care utilization in the United States. 
And according to the uh, latest year for which the Centers for Disease Control um, has statistics, 2015, that year, 2.7 million Americans died. How many Americans that year received hospice care? So 2.7 million Americans died. How often was it used? Which gives us kind of an insight to how often it's uh, used now. You're going to have to stay on, listen to Dr. Rodden, which is actually a joyful thing to do. And after that, we'll be back with the answer here on Dr. Doctor. Welcome to our special guest interview tonight, today, this morning, whatever time you're listening with Dr. Natalie Rodden. She graduated from Notre Dame for undergrad and went to Tulane Medical School. And while there, she became the first ever national president of the student section for medical students of the Catholic Medical Association. She then moved to Utah, where she trained in internal medicine, and then went to Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, for a palliative care fellowship. She also has a master's degree in bioethics from The Ohio State University, and she travels the country providing education and advocacy about end-of-life ethical issues. She also organizes an annual Catholic Medical Association end-of-life forum, and she works with the USCCB Pro-Life Secretariat and with the Augustine Institute spreading good news about palliative care and hospice care. Natalie, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you so much, Tom. Okay, Natalie, I first met you at a dinner in Santa Barbara, California in the fall of 2013. I was impressed by your joyful, exuberant nature, and I thought, oh, with all that energy, she must be a pediatrician. Yeah, I was not right. So when I learned that you were in palliative care, I was surprised. So what is it that led this joyful Southern Indiana gal to go into palliative care medicine? It's not something I expected of myself either. I'll tell you that. I actually went into internal medicine residency thinking I was going to do oncology. And then it was through caring for cancer patients that I realized there was this whole aspect of their care that sometimes I thought was missing. And so it was like the person was getting missed when we were treating just the tumor or whatever the disease was. And so I really liked that whole personal aspect and connecting with patients. I also really liked the intensive care unit and the gravity of, of the family meetings and, and working with people in that, that intense time. And I also really liked geriatrics, uh, as I found out. So the, the palliative care kind of has all those populations and it really became a, a good fit. Uh, one thing I didn't know uh, was that uh, it was an ethical minefield, Tom, but it's really God works in those ways, right? He connects us, and then we later learn how we can develop our strength to grow it as we go into something. Now, Natalie, we're so happy to have you with us. It, I think the first question we've just got to get to, and we talked a little bit about this in our introduction before you joined us, but help listeners understand the similarities and differences between hospice care, which is easier to say, and you hear the word more often, um, and palliative care. Sure. Yeah. And it's it's funny because uh, my mom always mispronounced palliative care too. And I had to phonetically like tell her how to say it because I mean, it's not something that, you know, you hear about all the time. And right. so when you think about it, um, I actually looked up the root word palliative comes from the word pallium, which means to cloak. And it's interesting because who wears the pallium is the Pope. And, and, and archbishops. Yes. So it's really a Catholic thing to begin with. <laughs> but, wow. But palliative care, you can think of as a big umbrella of care for people with serious illness. And it's a medical subspecialty. So since 2008, doctors have had to take a fellowship to take the board exam. And the fellowship year is typically after an internal medicine residency or, or family medicine. But people can go into it from surgery um, or or really anything, pediatrics, you know, you can really go into it from a lot of things. And you help people with the stress, side effects, and symptoms related to any serious illness. And so this isn't just people who are nearing end of life. This is people who are just dealing with, with maybe a chronic illness, like heart failure or obstructive uh, lung disease or dementia or after a stroke, maybe people who have cancers. Palliative care is, is really appropriate at any, any stage of their illness when they could benefit from additional support. So I like to think of us as a support team. And hospice is more a, a particular subset of palliative care for people that are, are ready for that support to even be increased even more, to where patients are ready to focus on comfort and being in their home with their family or wherever they are, not go back and forth to the hospital 
not pursue aggressive treatments, but to rather focus on letting their body be more natural and the disease take their natural course. And, and, and so that, that's when we shift from more of a palliative care approach where it just accompanies people through all their other treatments and is alongside, just add support to that focus just on that support, which is hospice. If that kind of makes sense. That's the difference. I think it's interesting that you said serious illness. You didn't say a terminal illness. Uh, so it could be a non-terminal condition, right? That is just very, very serious, maybe very uh, resource intensive, but not necessarily terminal. Right. Think about someone who's 42 years old, gets diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, they have young kids. They have their, their very busy, active life. This totally turns them upside down. They could totally benefit from from a supportive doctor and a support team because palliative care isn't a solo sport. There's nurses and social workers and chaplains that work alongside the doctor Mm. to help all those aspects of stress that a serious illness like cancer might give that that patient. We support the kids. We support uh, her spouse. We help her with going through navigating chemo and any side effects. But let's say she she deals with this cancer and she doesn't really have any problems and she goes into remission. She doesn't need palliative care anymore. So it's just helpful during that time of stress. So that's absolutely wow. right. So yeah, graduating yeah. from palliative care doesn't mean going to the cemetery like graduation from hospice care might. You're totally right. And I cringe when I have colleagues say, oh, that patient's going palliative or that patient's just getting palliative care. And I say, what? Well, that's just positive. Anyone getting additional support and a team to help them. You know, the evidence shows that people who have palliative care support live longer and they have more time out of the hospital. That really put us on the map with a study with um, with lung cancer by um, Dr. Tamel that was, was maybe about 10 years ago that came out in the New England Journal. And it was like so helpful because not only for patients, to, we knew a support team was, was a good thing, but to also see for the hospital and administration side to say, oh, wow, this actually could save us money too, because it cuts down on readmissions. And that's a win-win both for the hospital and for the patient and their family, because they don't want to spend all the time in their life dealing with readmission after readmission. So Natalie, we love the way that you come up with uh, myths and myth busting uh, and palliative and hospice care, because it's a fun way to introduce the topic to people. And Tom and I have made a, you know, an amateur career out of myth busting here on <laughs> Dr. Doctor. Great. Um, so we want to do, we want to do a little myth busting, even though some of these really aren't myths. So listeners, you're gonna have to really stay sharp uh, and close attention. Uh, but we'll start with the first myth. And that is palliative care clearly means giving up. Uh, why do people so often believe that? And why is it or is it not true, Natalie? It, it's definitely not true. Palliative care is not giving up. I would say having palliative care would be digging in. It would be would be really focusing the fight on how we can best live your life, the best life possible for as long as possible with this serious illness. So it's getting a support team to be alongside your other doctors and just add, add help, whether it's pain management whether it's other symptoms, emotional support, uh, that spiritual support you need to, to help best thrive in your life despite having this diagnosis, whatever it is. Very good setup for the second myth, and that is once you agree on palliative care, you're just after comfort, you're not treating a disease anymore. Right. That's also a myth because I would say that palliative care would be an additional layer of armor to help fight that disease. You have this team on in your on your side to help you say, okay, we're gonna. What, what does life, the best life, look like for you? We may not be able to cure this cancer. We may not be able to cure this heart failure, but we want you to still be able to do things in life that make life the most joyful and best for you. And if you want to get out there to your fishing hole and keep fishing, we want to make that possible. Maybe that's with special medicines to help you breathe easier, or maybe that's with working with your family. We have to brainstorm. We have to be creative. And that's what we're about. We have this, we have the time and we have the support to spend that time. You you still get your other doctors supporting you and then you get us. You know, I think Natalie, it was interesting. You remind me, I'm often yelling at my 12 year olds. Whenever the word just appears in a sentence, there's usually a problem in the sentence. And it makes me think of, you know, this patient is terminally ill. We're just going to pray. Because, you know, it's a waste, but that's all there is left. And when you said, (laughs) we're just going to do palliative care, it's suggesting that it's somehow not as much uh, as something else. I thought that was pretty powerful. But let's move on. Another myth. So that is palliative care 
is most appropriate when a patient is nearing the end of their life. True or false? That would be false. I think palliative care is most helpful whenever the patient needs it, when they have a serious illness. Sometimes it's the time right at diagnosis. Sometimes it could be when when a cancer has progressed or spread or when a disease is worse or when a patient gets readmitted to the hospital and there's a crisis. Maybe the patient was doing fine, but their caregiver had a health concern or and can't care for them anymore. So their normal stress, their stress level just goes up. Their normal support network is breaking down. Any time is appropriate for palliative care. We say any stage of illness. We also say any age. So we help people. We're not just for people that are elderly or nearing end of life. We, we help people who are in any stage of life live that best life possible. Now, Natalie, who is usually asking you for help? Another specialist, the family, who is saying, gosh, we need to call Natalie and her team? Right. So I work in a hospital, so I do inpatient palliative care consults. So that means that other doctors in the hospital who are taking care of patients will ask me to take care of their person. So it's like you ask for a cardiology consult or you ask for a, a nephrologist to help you with dialysis or something, you know, and it gets a little bit beyond the scope of how you normally care for your patients, you get a specialist to come in. Because I suggest that all doctors can be primary palliative care doctors, meaning they can address good communication skills and help understand what patients' wishes are and, and manage their basic symptoms. But sometimes it gets a little overwhelming. And having a team that's had special training in navigating this, managing the more complex symptoms, helping get resources in the community, working, has the time to sit and have a, a family meeting and really discuss all the options, that's when palliative care is helpful. So my a lot of my patients are in the intensive care unit and I, and I get consulted there. I yeah. see patients on the normal medical floor, but palliative care is also in the community. They have palliative care clinics. Sometimes palliative care teams are embedded in like a cancer center or in, in Denver. I know there's a kidney group that has and they're trying to get palliative care support in their dialysis centers, which is great. And, and palliative care can also be um, home visits as well, which is nice because a lot of people, um, it's quite a challenge sometimes to get to appointments. And so having a team that can come to you and visit you in your home is also a really beneficial thing. And palliative care teams can then go to nursing homes and, or wherever the patient lives. So Tom and I have become somewhat of an expert in physicians, and this may shock you, but occasionally we've encountered a few with egos. Um, <laughs> no one on this podcast, but others. Uh, do, do you ever sense there's a resistance to consult you and the palliative care team? And, and if so, how do, you, how do you get around that? I think that is a changing dynamic. I think more and more doctors are realizing the value of having this team. I'm not here to be a threat. I'm here to understand what is the question that a doctor has that I can help with. That's that's my job as a consultant. So if a doctor says, I need to better understand really what this patient wants, and I don't have the time because I have to see 20 other patients today, will you sit and meet with their family and, and, and talk through this? Or I can't manage their pain. It, it, they need help. You know, maybe they don't want me to talk about certain things, or they say, we're, we're pursuing aggressive chemotherapy. We're, we're definitely just wanting your expertise on, on, on symptom management and how you can get them set up with support. But other times they'll say, you know, this is the fourth admission in a month. This patient's not doing well. I don't, I don't see how they're going to be able to continue with aggressive care. I'd like you to bring up the idea of hospice and I'll do that. And, and so I work with the consulting doctor. So I really try to, to respect them and their care plan. And so we're, give, we're giving the same message to the patient and we're on the same page. So Natalie, what are some of the things that you can do in palliative care that are really effective that very few people know about? I would say a lot of what we, we have is time. That's something that a lot of doctors don't have. And in palliative care, I can make a, an appointment with a patient and their family and really anyone who's important to the patient. So pre-COVID, Sometimes we'd have meetings with, you know, double digits of people that would come to the hospital. And I've had meetings with the patient's spiritual leader in their life. Um, their, their minister or their, or their priest will come in even. I've had have meetings with their neighbors. I've had a bunch of grandkids come in. We do conference calls all the time. And, and so we're able to really suss out what is the patient's values. Excuse me. Suss out. Is that a Southern Indiana <laughs> jargon? <laughs> no, please don't go with that. <laughs> that's that's the first time on Doctor Doctor. Oh, great! No, I love lingo. <laughs> well, so so what I like to say is I try to do value concordant care. So I have time to learn who a patient is. 
I'm going to ask them about their their life, their career, their their values, their their hobbies, what they would be doing, what they experience is is enjoyable life, what they would rather be doing than being in the hospital, getting to know them, getting to know their family unit. Then I take time to say, okay, sounds like these are your values. And, and then I'm able to say, okay, with these values, these are your medical choices. This is what makes sense to me. Does that make sense to you? And then I'm able to relay that to the rest of the medical team. So I think that's a, a big thing we can do in palliative care. I also okay. think we have a, a special training in, in opioid management and so I think a lot of my colleagues and even myself, before I went to palliative fellowship, I considered myself a bit opiophobic. Like I was nervous and scared around the concept of giving pain meds. But in patients with advanced illness, these medications are key to improving patients' functionality and being able to do more because we're managing their symptom. And we have very safe ways of starting low and, and increasing very slowly and to giving these medications in a good way and help and, and safely and, and continuing that. And, and I think that makes a big difference to their to their life. And that's something else we can add. Those are just a couple of things. I could talk about it for a while. Of course, I'm biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, Natalie, I mean, while we're moving along with myths and terminology, um, I think this is a good one. And, and it's related to the, the do not resuscitate status or DNR. And most of our listeners already know that phrase, or uh, if they haven't heard it on our podcast, they've, they've heard it on TV shows and movies. But there's this feeling that palliative care patients or hospice care patients must be labeled do not resuscitate. Uh, that is, they're, they're not allowed to be resuscitated should their heart stop beating. Um, walk us and our listeners through uh, those issues and misunderstandings. Yeah, I think that that's a very common misunderstanding. And the way I like to also frame it is do not resuscitate does not mean do not care or do not treat. And for many of my patients, they just don't understand that. And so basically a, a DNR would mean if a patient passes away naturally from a cardiopulmonary arrest, that we allow their body to be peaceful and that we don't do chest compressions or, or shocks or putting them on the ventilator. And many people do not want that. They actually want medical care in the hospital. They want to be treated, but they do not want that intensive life support kind of care. And so really working through that with them and helping them understand that nothing about their current medical care in the hospital would often change if they become a DNR. That being said, for many patients, um, that they, they can stay full code. They can, they can be resuscitated. They can go on, on life support machines. That might be really helpful to them with how we're dealing with their cardiac issue or their cancer or whatever. And, and really, it's about giving them more support through palliative care is, is, has nothing to do with their resuscitation status. Yes, it's something we talk about because we're trying to respect their goals, but having a support team help them. And if, and if they're deciding that based on their values that they would want to go on life support machines or they would want to be a full resuscitation attempt, then I think definitely I support that for them. And, and there's a difference in each patient. If I really think it's a non-beneficial care option because of how frail or debilitated someone is, I think as any of us would, would talk to a patient about that honestly, that something might cause them more harm than good. But I think in general, it's it's not consistent at all to say that palliative care patients can be um, need to be a certain resuscitation status. For hospice, it's the same thing. You don't have to be um, DNR to go on home hospice. I think that more so with hospice, with that mentality and that philosophy that I'm not wanting to go back to the hospital, I'm not wanting aggressive cares, then usually a DNR makes more sense and is consistent with that. But it's not like a, something that they... Sometimes in the hospital, I can't broach that topic. They're not ready to go there. They don't want to give that up. And that's okay. The hospice will still accept them. A patient can still go. And that's something that the hospice team can continue to work on and support with the patient. And so I, I think about it more. What are our big goals? How can I help you? And, and then we'll figure that out as it comes up. In the last minute of this first half, as we wind up palliative care myths, you already stated pretty clearly that any physician can be, can be a primary palliative care doctor. But how about the myth that this is only for older people, that palliative care is not meant for children or newborns? Yeah, that's a myth. And that's something I didn't know either. And so palliative care actually um, is for any age of, of patient. So there's pediatric palliative care. There's palliative care for adolescents, um, young adults. And, and there's actually fellowships now for pediatrics. And there's, there's even this concept of perinatal 
um, hospice or palliative care. So when a couple learns perhaps that they have their, their baby that they're carrying is, is going to have a short lifespan and, and it, like they, they have a terminal diagnosis. The baby's not going to live very long. They can meet with a palliative care representative, someone on a team or maybe a whole team, depending on where they are and their resources. But this team can help guide them with a, care, a birth plan, basically. You know, we don't want to be fully resuscitated. We don't want to have all these interventions. We want to have the siblings there. We want to have a birthday cake. Um, whatever it is, it can be really beautiful and healing for this family. And there's, I've, I've really learned some beautiful things about that. Natalie, that's a great way to end this first half. We'll be back, listeners, with more about myths on hospice care after the break. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor with this episode's guest, Dr. Natalie Rodema palliative care and hospice care specialists. Uh, just before the break, we, we were talking about uh, a lot of myths, and we want to continue with some myth busting. But you mentioned, Natalie, at the very beginning that you know your career or your specialty is an ethical minefield. And as a physician, as a Catholic, what are those ethical minefields in your specialty? And, and what would surprise our listeners to know of the challenges that you face on a daily basis? <sighs> I think that for me, the, the role as a palliative care doctor um, has been one where I've realized that the gravity that people are putting into my, into my lap, you know, they're asking me to help guide patients and their families and through these very difficult situations. And how I frame something, how we discuss it can really lead a family different ways. And so that's really important that I form my conscience really well and that I can help provide the most ethical care to these people. So for example, there can be situations of, of where I've, I've seen the opportunity. I mean, I, you know, obviously don't agree with this, but like hastening end of life. Um, sure. You can see that where there'd be opportunity for that. Um, you can see where there would be um, not giving a patient a fair shot at fighting for some disease. Um, of course, in our culture, there's uh, some states have the legality of things like physician-assisted suicide, and, and that's unfortunately legal where, where I practice in Colorado. And so those have been some of the most devastatingly um, challenging cases for me is when patients ask me for those um, medications, and they're so desperate because of their suffering that they experience that they think um, dying would be better than, than living. And so that has happened with some of your patients? Uh, yes, it, it does. I fortunately work at a healthcare system that has opted out of uh, physician-assisted suicide. But it's funny, Tom. I moved to Colorado. I'm all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to practice palliative medicine. I take my board exam on a Monday in November, and that Tuesday, the next day, very next calendar day, physician-assisted suicide became legal in Colorado. <laughs> I would not have moved here. And that's where like, I feel God totally, like he's introduced like opportunities for me in, 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 in little ways over time, because there's no way I would have been brave enough to go into palliative medicine and the gravity of what I would have to face, particularly practicing in a state where it's legal. And so I think those have been some of my most challenging cases. And then there's always the nuanced cases around artificial nutrition, hydration, um, challenges around patients who might be in more of a, um, like a neurologically devastated state and they're in a persistent coma or something, a lot of opportunities where I really have to think through and I've had to do a lot of formation. I mean, this opportunity of my job has led me to seek out a master's in bioethics. And it's exactly because I realized that I was being put in positions that uh, were, were very influential in, in my hospital and I needed to be better formed. So Natalie, myths about hospice care. Hospice is a place, not a something else. <laughs> a lot of patients think hospice is a, is a place, and it's not. Um, hospice is a philosophy of care that takes place wherever the patient is. And so when I think about if a patient is ready for hospice or if that's the most appropriate care for them, I'm thinking two things. Does the patient meet criteria by Medicare guidelines? to be able to go on hospice care, so on a physical standpoint, and also does the patient and their family match the philosophy of hospice care, meaning they're ready to focus most on comfort and uh, less aggressive medical cares, not going back and forth to the hospital. Um, and, and a hospice doesn't cover things like 
continuing dialysis or blood transfusions if someone is is transfusion dependent or uh, most chemotherapies. So it's a shift. And I sometimes say it's like a pivot. And sometimes I use the framework of fighting that language. A lot of families will say, or the patient themselves, doc, I'm a fighter. I don't want to go to hospice, but they're totally like not doing well. They keep coming back and forth to the hospital. Their disease is progressing. And I always say, and this is true, I really believe this, that hospice is reframing the fight. It's fighting for good days. It's fighting for time with family outside of the hospital. It's fighting for more comfort. And it's aggressively fighting for those things. And I think that sometimes that's the fight worth winning, whereas the fight maybe fighting the cancer is, is one where we're hitting a, hitting a wall. And so that can be really helpful as we reframe, but still know we're providing that still good care. Wow. So Natalie, would it be accurate to say that in palliative care, you're still going for cure and care, but for hospice, cure isn't in the cards anymore, but you're still caring? Absolutely still caring. A, a colleague sometimes called it intensive caring. Like we're going from the intensive care unit to the intensive caring place. And wow. so and so hospice can take place in a patient's home most often because that's where they want to be. They want to be in their comfort of their own bed. They want to be with all of their food and their pets and wherever they are happiest. Um, but sometimes hospice will take place in other places like a nursing um, home, if that's where the patient is or needs to be, if the family can't care for them. Hospice can also take place in a hospice center, but that's more rare these days. A patient has to usually meet criteria to go there where they have an active symptom that cannot be managed at home by the hospice team or they're imminently dying is usually why they're in a hospice center. There's even times patients can be on hospice in the hospital, but again, that's more really nearing end of life. And what I encourage patients and families, hospice can be associated with at the end of life because people get on it too late. They're getting on it in the last days or hours. Whereas at hospice, people could benefit for months ahead of time. I have patients sometimes on hospice for years. You can keep getting recertified. And it's something a lot of people don't realize is that if you meet the criteria medically and you have the philosophy, you can keep getting recertified every 90 days. And so it can be a really good benefit for these patients and their families. So Natalie, I think a lot of our listeners are always shocked um, to realize that someone's job deals so um, intrinsically with death uh, as yours would. Uh, and that's a lot to sort of take in for a non-medical listener. Uh, and I love the the stories of Mother Teresa, apparently, who would pray for people and say, may you have a good death. Um, <laughs> you know, help us and our listeners understand sort of the difference in those who, uh, who meet death um, with a calm and a peace, uh, as opposed to maybe those who do not. And what's the difference and uh, what could we learn from that? I think you're right. I've, I definitely have been around death and I think about death more than the normal person. And, <laughs> and yet I still smile. I'm still smiling. And I think my faith has a lot to do with that. But some people call what we do in palliative care being like a midwife for the soul. You may have mm. heard that before, but you're preparing that person for what we believe eternal life, you know, and, and, and it might be different for each patient with their own belief system, but it, it, they're preparing for something different. They're preparing to leave this earth. And so how can I help them? And just like births can be long or short, or that was a good birth, that was challenging, so can death. And to know that there are labor pains of the dying process, and how can we help ease those labor pains? And so that might be with good pain management, that might be with good spiritual support. It, it really depends. And each death is like each birth, very individualized. And we try to help love that patient the best through that. So I think there, there, are, um, there are those deaths that I feel, oh, that was, that was sad, or that, that felt like there was a lot of angst in that, or there was a lot of suffering versus another patient might be very accepting of what's going on and the preparation before that. And that's why I think early palliative care is very helpful, because if the earlier that you get the support team in place, they're helping you, dealing, helping the patient and their family, dealing with this chronic illness, then at the time, as time may progress, that they're ready for hospice and making that shift, oftentimes they, the same team can follow them, the same trusted people, and they shift from a palliative side to the hospice side, and we're able to continue to, to provide that good support. And I think it's never too early 
for good support uh, and to think about how we start planning and, you know, even things like advanced directives or, you know, really working through what are these potential problems that could come up um, as you deal with this disease to make that dying process smoother and less stressful. So Natalie, a myth that I believed when I was in medical school about hospice is that you basically would stop all of your previous medications and treatments that were aimed at a specific disease process, uh, including maybe artificial nutrition and hydration. Are those true? So they sh- that should not happen. So I think this is this is challenging because every person's case is, is individual. But but when you go on hospice, if you do or your loved one does, you should go through the medicines with the hospice team. And with each medicine, you think about, is this beneficial to me? Is this helping my symptoms? Is this helping my uh, overall life, getting my goals that I need? And in general, um, many medications like high cholesterol medicines or blood pressure medicines might just be adding to our pill burden that we're taking in rather than really helping us to, to really extend or to improve our life and what's going on for these patients with other serious illness. And so medications like that are often discontinued. But if there's a medication that's helping with, let's say, uh, swelling in the legs, there's a medication that's helping with mood, there's a medication with shortness of breath, nausea, any of these medications should be continued most definitely because they're needed to help that patient have more symptom support. So it's really fine tuning, like going through the medication list and what's helpful. Now, the the medications that are more disease-directed, more toward aggressive care, like chemotherapy meds, those are not going to be continued by hospice. They're not going to be paid for generally. And the reason is because that's not the the philosophy of hospice. Hospice is more toward your comfort and and keeping you out of the hospital, and we're not going to be doing aggressive lab work and going to appointments. And so if you want to continue with that aggressive chemotherapy, then you're probably not with the mindset of going on hospice. And so that's where sometimes patients will say, I don't want to stop these meds, uh, that I, that I, I want to continue them. And I, they're not really with the hospice mentality. And so as far as artificial nutrition hydration, so that really is considered by, by Catholics as ordinary basic care. It's food and water. Patients should be getting that. Um, and, I, and I think that is something that a hospice should support. There are certain situations where a patient as they're nearing end of life, um, may stop eating as much, may stop drinking as much. That's part of the natural process of that dying, of that um, as we're a midwife for the soul, like I was mentioning, um, sometimes the body just starts shutting down. And this is not, this is really close to the end of life in the last days, hours of life. The body is not able to assimilate those nutrients. So if we were forcing nutrition hydration on them, it actually could add to swelling, bloating, nausea, other symptoms, shortness of breath, it could actually make some of that worse. And so it's, again, very patient-specific, but there's certain situations where actually the benefit of the nutrition and hydration is actually more burdensome than the benefit, if if that makes sense. That makes sense, yes. Uh, Here's another myth. I have it labeled the unidirectional myth. That is, once you've elected hospice, you're trapped. You can't get out of it. That's a myth. Hospice is not a dead-end road. And And I'd like to point out something. I've told very few people this, but I lived in a hospice for four weeks. When I did my emergency room rotation in Duluth, Minnesota, they housed medical students in the hospice. It was so, but it was the top floor of the hospital. And as you said, that's not usually where it's done anymore. But anyway, so you can get out of the hospice. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, for example, a common example I give, if a patient decides to go on hospice, they don't want to be back and forth to the hospital or pursue aggressive cares, but then they, let's say, break their hip when they're at home, they fall. It makes a lot of sense to revoke hospice, go to the hospital, get orthopedic surgery. It's going to help your mobility. It's going to help your pain and then go back home again and get back on hospice. And that's probably one of the most common scenarios that we see people revoking and getting back on. And, and that's fine. And the hospice, the hospice team works with that. I mean, it's, they're, they're, we're all like here for the best, best of the patient and what makes sense. You know, there's other people who might say, oh, I, I'm improving. I, I'm doing so, much, so well on hospice. I'm feeling better. I want to try chemo again. That's fine too. You can get off hospice and go yeah. back to your other doctors. Yeah. So Natalie, another myth, we're, we've got plenty of them, don't we? Um, and it, it's certainly probably more of a fear than it is a myth. And that is this idea that hospice is a great idea, but it's for the rich and famous and it's very expensive and insurance is not going to cover that. Uh, help us understand that issue. 
So hospice is 100% covered by the, by Medicare, by the benefit. And so that is something really good to make sure people know that it's free. And, and not only is, is the care free, but the medications are covered and any medical equipment. So a lot of times patients would benefit from a hospital bed or a bedside commode, so they don't have to get up in the middle of the night. Um, hospice will cover the supplemental oxygen. Hospice covers um, any cares related to the patient's what they need. So if a patient, you know, a hospice will cover like a CNA to come and help with bathing. Hospice will cover um, the, the nurse to work on wound care. Hospice, you know, there's the doctor, there's nurse, there's volunteers through hospice. It's a very comprehensive situation. What hospice doesn't pay for is room and board. And so that's why hospice is oftentimes done in a patient's home or in their family's home. But if that's not possible and a patient needs to be elsewhere, like at a nursing facility, uh, that will be something the patient has to pay for. And that's something we come up a lot in the hospital that people don't realize. So the care would be paid for, mm-hmm. but maybe the facility would not be if a facility were required. Yes. And, and, and dealing with that issue with a, a parent, I've learned that getting nursing home care covered is uh, is a Rube Goldberg type of who knows how you get there. Is that something your team can help them with? Or where do where do patients go to get that? Because that's a big worry for many patients. Yes, and there often is a social worker on the palliative care team in the hospital and also on the hospice team. And the social worker can help navigate through all of those concerns. And that's really true. I think that financial issues and dealing with insurance are are big stresses for people and things that as physicians we don't think to ask about. And oftentimes a simple question like, many patients I've cared for in your situation have stresses related to their insurance or financial concerns. Would that be you? Just normalize it. And and families will be often sighing a big relief to me and saying, yes, that's like my biggest worry. And so we spend time working on that and getting some of these insurance unknowns figured out and, and working through that. And the hospice and palliative care teams are very creative. They want to make it work for the family and, and spend time to do that. We have, you know, we have hearts for this. So Natalie, listening to you, it's fascinating for one. Um, uh, but the other thing that comes to mind is, you know, when you were a medical student, um, in gross anatomy, uh, did you have this vision for your career to take care of patients like this? And if not, how did you find your way in this amazing career that you're describing? I definitely did not even know what palliative care was when I was in anatomy (laughs) lab. I think that most medical students, I, I was like them and wanted to go to medical school to cure or to fix to diagnose and and to make people better. And so it was a big philosophical switch for me to think, I'm going to be taking care of people that I can't fix. Mm. And and that was hard because I think as a physician, there's there's such a gift in that. And yet I find such immense meaning in helping to creatively reduce suffering in their life and whatever that looks like. Like I mentioned, financial stress or physical stress or emotional stress, or how can we have healing in relationships? How can I promote better communication among the family? How can I help give truth to this patient? So many patients don't even know that their their disease is incurable or that this disease is a cycle. They keep going back and forth to the hospital and rehab and hospital rehab, and I can break that cycle for them, or, or I can get it to where they get they have the truth about their disease so that they can live their life in, in more of a freedom and get support that's meaningful to them. And, and that's really beautiful for me. Mm. And the, the gravity of what I get to enter into, that the, the intimate space that a palliative care doctor gets to walk into in patients in, you know, in an hour or more of a, of a one consult in the hospital, I get to talk about what like the crux of what makes you human um, and who you are and what's important to you and how can I make your life the best it can be. And, and that's, truly beautiful and such a gift to be able to do. And I think as Catholics in particular, it, it works so well with our faith because I'm here to, to advocate and stand up for the vulnerable. I'm here to shed light on people who are suffering and to um, to help, help them and their families to still see that life is worth living and that this person who may not be able to do much still has intrinsic dignity because of their personhood. And and, and that each day I, I get to shed the, share the light of Christ, you know, in that room to a patient who may not have felt that human touch. I, I say a lot to the, 
my team, we're here to humanize the situation. We're here to humanize this patient and who they are. There's so much beyond a blue gown. And, and one of the things I do is I, I have this, give my, my uh, give an assignment to my uh, families of my patients. I give them this picture frame and uh, it's a piece of paper that looks like a frame. And I say, bring in a photo that represents who the patient is to their medical team. We want to know them too, because it's not there in the bed with the hospital gown. It's mm. with the fish they caught. It's with uh, their grandkids. It's with their muscle car that they're so proud of. You know, it's with all these beautiful things that make them them. And that's what we bring to the surface. And so there's been some beautiful moments where I've been able to help the patient <laughs> realize that. And then it's a, it's really beautiful to see their transformation. Well, Natalie, I think I just heard uh, the internet, the internet shutting down with medical <laughs> students flooding it, Googling palliative care, because I think you just convinced every student in the country that they want to be a palliative care doc. If I weren't so gall darn old, I'd probably go back and do it, you know, do it myself. But uh, I, I think we've all been moved by, uh, just by your passion to care. My goodness, I don't describe my specialty as caring, uh, but your specialty really is wrapped around uh, the art, in some cases lost, uh, of caring. Natalie, what final comments do you have uh, for our listeners? I would say to, to people that palliative care really is a helpful field for people to live the best life possible for as long as possible. We're not about hastening end of life. Palliative care is the antidote to physician-assisted suicide. It's about elevating the person and who they are. And as Catholics, I think it's a beautiful field to consider. And I know that some people have had concerns about palliative care potentially hastening end of life or something not, not very ethical. And I would say stand up to your, to your providers if you have concerns and let them know that you're Catholic, your faith is important to you, and as is the sanctity of life. And if you don't like the providers you have, you have the freedom to switch. You can get a new hospice team, a new palliative team, but but that the, the, the core of what we do in this field is about helping people through very difficult times. Natalie Rodden, thank you for being with us and informing us more openly about the myths and truths of hospice and palliative care. God bless you and your work. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. And listeners, you know that it's time for the answer to our medical trivia question. Not a trivial manner uh, by any means. And so if we review the question, according to the CDC data from 2015, how many people per year currently receive hospice care? And as a clue, I mentioned that 2.7 million people died that year. Well, it's about half, 1.4 million people for the last year we have data, 2015, received hospice care in the United States. So about half of people who died benefited from that kind of care in their lives. And if they had a doctor like Dr. Rodden, they had a, a very uh, caring and loving exit to the next world. Well, I mean, it's easy with all that's going on. Uh, in this crazy world today, and and even more so in the crazy world that you and I live in, Tom, called medicine. Uh, yes. It's easy to be a little jaded, maybe a little cynical, but I'll tell you, I think I could listen to Natalie all night. Well, um, and you have to come up with only three top <laughs> takeaways. So what are your top three from the many wonderful things Natalie said? You know, uh, in no certain order, uh, one of them is that palliative care, it, it isn't the end, but it, it's the beginning, or at least it should be uh, the beginning. It's not, it's not the cleanup crew that gets brought in at the end of a disease process, but it's really the crew that should come in at the beginning of any serious condition uh, or illness. I really love the way she said that. That was beautiful. Yeah. And next, I would say um, the phrase that she used, uh, you and some of our listeners may know that I'm married to a nurse midwife. Uh, and Natalie <laughs> used that phrase that palliative care docs are midwives for the soul. Um, yes. And that that just conjures up so many beautiful images for me. Midwife means with woman. Uh, and this idea that that their job as a specialty is to be with the soul uh, and to really help that soul uh, in those last stages of being, that's that's some of the most beautiful medical imagery I've seen in a long time. Uh, and then the last, I think the last top three takeaway for me is that, um, not to put too fine a point on it, there's hope. Uh, 
<laughs> there there yes. is hope. No matter what your condition is, um, there's hope. And I think physicians like Natalie and the specialty of palliative care uh, are evidence of that in and of themselves. But uh, there is hope. So be not afraid. And if you listen to Natalie, uh, she did bring up the fact it is an ethical minefield and there are practitioners in palliative and hospice care who don't necessarily share our Catholic beliefs. Uh, but she did point out that she interviews patients and asks what their values are, tries to follow them. And any good palliative or hospice care physician will do that. Uh, that's part of their training. But uh, still, buyer beware. Uh, just be alert. Make sure you know what you believe so that it's followed when you and your loved ones need that care. Yeah, I think of another uh, a guest that you and I had on the show some time back that said um, any any patient should want Catholic physicians nearing end of life care because we'll always default to life. Yes, uh, and, and yes. I really think she, she echoed that and uh, a lot of a lot of the things that she was describing. Well, thank you for being with us for another episode of Doctor Doctor, the award winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We invite you to share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app, if not on the radio. And if you would, be sure to rate and review our show to help other listeners find us. Uh, you can also find all of our episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.